Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Rye Jewell, Assistant Professor of History at Fitchburg State University. She is the author of Dollars for Dixie, Business and the Transformation of Conservatism in the 20th Century, published by Cambridge University Press. Kate Jewell, welcome to Working History. Thank you. It's great to be here. Your book, Dollars for Dixie, looks at the roots of a type of political and economic conservatism in the United States, um, defined by a number of things, free market capitalism, conservative fiscal policies, and limited bureaucracy, which you, in your book, argue, grew in part from an organization um, based in the South known as the Southern States Industrial Council, which was organized in 1933. So to start us off, could you talk a little bit uh, about, and, and maybe just in broad brushstrokes, about what the SSIC was, uh, why it was organized, and who comprised the membership of this group? Sure. So the SSIC was really, it started as sort of an offshoot of the National Association of Manufacturers, mm-hmm. and is this one guy in particular who really spearheaded the organization with his his inner circle of of connected industrialists across the region. His name was John Edgerton, and he had been president of NAM through the 1920s. So for 11 years, he was Mm -hmm. president, Um, which in its own right is kind of a remarkable origin story because he was the president of this small woolen manufacturer um, industrial company in uh, Lebanon, Tennessee, in Middle Tennessee, about 30 miles from Nashville. It had about 80 employees, but he rose to be the head of this prominent uh, manufacturers organization mm-hmm. in the 20s. And you know he really was a champion of anti-unionism during the decade. But when the depression hit, he and his leadership were rejected. Really, he was kind of kicked out um, in 1931. And he and Edgerton and, and other industrialists really felt as the New Deal launched that the South needed a strong voice in Washington, that NAM uh, wasn't enough to represent the needs of Southern industry as the New Deal was accelerating. Mm-hmm. Uh, though these guys were mostly Democrats, um, they were business progressives, um, at, but they were wary of what the Roosevelt administration might hand the South in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. And they also saw themselves as representing Southern industry on the national stage. They modeled themselves after the New England Council, which had formed in the 1920s, um, to really to confront uh, the flow of textile manufacturing to the South. Mm-hmm. And so the SSIC was, represented the ongoing, I guess, institutionalization of the economic rivalry that was developing and intensifying between the regions in the 1920s. So they found their impetus to really pull the organization together after the passage of the National Industrial Recovery Act, one of the first uh, programs in the New Deal, part of the, the of the first New Deal. And they focused particularly on the idea of wage differentials. Mm-hmm. Um, they operated like other business associations did, um, you know, lobbying basically in Washington, um, and it was really um, an organization of textile manufacturers. Not, not only was this the leading industry in the region, it was also the region, the region's most prominent industry that had the most potential to be transformed mm-hmm. uh, by um, by the New Deal. Unlike the lumber industry, for example, or its extracts, which had a majority of interest in the South, um, 
textiles had been moving to the South for the previous decade, but it was the industry as a whole was still dominated by Northern interests mm-hmm. with factories that paid much higher wages than in the Southern factories. And so they saw themselves as, as most likely to have their arrangements with their workers, their low wages, basically, mm-hmm. uh, be undermined by the New Deal. Given this, you know, when we think of, of the, the sort of backgrounds of these um, uh, of the members of SSIC, of its leaders, are they very much sort of coming out of the typical, you know, New South businessmen's cohort, if you will, that, you know, really was sort of a champion of selling the region as a low wage, unorganized, you know, native labor, all the sort of mantras that you that you heard a lot at the turn of the century. Are these guys really still trying to sell that version of the South? Absolutely. They, these were, these are, were the boost boosters mm-hmm. of the region. Right. Um, most of the members and their, their names, you know, anybody who's, who's read, um, you know, Stephen Woodward's origins of the new South. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in looking at the, the leaders of the SSIC, they will see the names, the same surnames come up over and over and over again, but they are the sons, the grandsons and the nephews really of those founders. These were, the builders of, of Southern New South industry, mostly textile leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, a few had grown very large, um, such as Bib Manufacturing or Avondale Mills, um, mm-hmm. the Comers, you know, mm-hmm. who were connected mm-hmm. to Alabama politics. Right. You know, some of them had multiple sites of production, um, but it did draw a lot of support from, um, you know, single factory firms like Edgerton's Lebanon Woolen Mills. Um, it, it drew from, I guess these county seat elite types, right, to use Mm -hmm. uh, that phrase, these, these were people who, you know, had some connection to progressivism of a, you know, Southern business progressivism um, in that style. Um, They saw themselves as leaders in their town or in their state. Um, Some of them also were uh, investors in industry, a lot mm-hmm. of bank presidents or retailers joined the SSIC or paid dues in any case. Um, basically, it drew widely, not only from industrials, but also anybody who was interested in building the industrial base mm-hmm. of the region and making sure that the South remained competitive. Right. Um, and if you could just uh, back up a tiny bit, you had mentioned the National Industrial Recovery Act. I was wondering if you could maybe for for maybe our more general listeners who might not be familiar with that, just explain briefly what that was, you know, the codes, quote unquote, that came into use as part of that and, and how these, you know, these textile industrialists would have experienced that. Sure. So so what the National Industrial Recovery Act did is it set up the NRA, which I always have to remind people is the National Recovery Administration, not the National Rifle Association. Right. <laughs> Most people would know it now, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the NRA um, allowed businesses to get together. It suspended antitrust laws. It allowed them to share information such as what they paid their workers, what their production costs were, uh, marketing arrangements. And they basically worked on kind of a voluntary basis so that you know, an industry would, uh, or a manufacturer would come, or the uh, leaders of industry, um, as well as representatives of labor would come to Washington, they'd sit on a code board, there would be oftentimes a business association representative present, and they would come to terms as to what constituted fair wages, um, and operating practices, basically, in each industrial sector. Mm -hmm. So the textile manufacturers had their own code, lumber manufacturers had their own code, own code. And it, and it 
it really ran the gamut of all mm -hmm. of these industrial sectors and it, it grew very, very complex very quickly. But for people in the SSIC, these manufacturers, they are going to Washington to meet and they f found themselves to be in the position um, of a minority. That's mm -hmm. the way that they put it mm -hmm. on these code boards. And so they saw northern manufacturers setting wages at a rate higher than what southern manufacturers paid. So they had to increase their wages at a higher percentage than what northern manufacturers say would have had to mm -hmm. um, just because you know, these, these kind of regional differentials in the costs of doing business, as they said. And so they saw this as profoundly unfair, that, that this was the basically the brunt of, of the recovery falling on their shoulders when they were the most vulnerable in the nation, industrial region in the nation. You know, and so they would point to the South's deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, they and they generally genuinely saw themselves, right, so going back to this New South ideal, they saw themselves as paternalists, right, mm -hmm. that they were giving their workers a chance to have an industrial life. But of course, you know, for their argument, right, it was unfair to make them pay the same rate as industrial workers in the North who mm -hmm. had generations of experience in industry, right? These were people coming from um, subsistence agriculture, from the hills, you know, into the mills and North Carolina, um, and were largely unskilled. And so they had no problem kind of drawing on this idea of, um, you know, deficient Southern labor mm -hmm. to make this case that the NRA should have differentials built into it based mm -hmm. on region so that the Northern workers would have to pay. So in the textile code, it would be $13 a week and the South should have a differential where they would only have to pay $12 a week. Right, right. So before we talk a little bit more about, you know, what the SSIC was doing during the New Deal, could you explain just a little bit how and why you ended up choosing this particular group um, to focus on for your study? So it's, it's kind of a, a funny story. A, a friend of mine reminded me of the saying about how your first book as a historian is oftentimes about your family and your oh second book is about you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and for me, this is absolutely true because... I, my family's from Lebanon, Tennessee, okay. uh, where John Edgerton's Lebanon Woolen Mill was. And not only that, my grandfather worked there, my great aunt worked there, my dad worked there. Okay. Um, so my family were mill workers, basically. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and um, my dad was, you know, he worked there during summers um, when he was in college, but my grandfather had, um, his family had moved to Lebanon from the surrounding hills in the 1920s um, and when his father was injured and he actually quit school during the depression to help support his family and worked mm -hmm. in the in the spinning room uh -huh. at the mill and this was, he actually started working there after the NRA and he made um, what per week what his former supervisor had made wow. that they okay. he just had raised that much that sure. just a teenager coming in um, uh, to to work in the mill um, made what a supervisor used to have made. Um, that was one of the first things he told me. Um, so when I was a student at Vanderbilt, I was taking David Carlton's new South class mm -hmm. and I went to him and I said, well, you know, my family worked in this mill and, and, you know, I'm sort of interested in, in how it fits into the larger history. And David said, I'll never forget this. We're standing outside of Benson hall at Vanderbilt. And he says, 
oh, John Edgerton, he was the head of this rather nasty organization. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I see. And I said, and you're like, ding, 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 ding. Nasty. I like that. Like, I will totally, totally investigate that. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that my uncle had gone to high school um, with John Edgerton's granddaughter. Uh-huh. And so I really became intrigued by this idea that, you know, here is this, you know, really powerful industrial figure whose history I had no recollection of. And that when we think about the South in general, you know, I, I never associated with these types of people yet. These industries were really central to the reorganization of my family's life and, and to the town and were really instrumental in building these towns. But if you drive around, you know, these kind of county seats in the South, you'll see civil war generals, and you'll see these empty mill buildings, but mm-hmm. there's really no popular memory that exists about them and the role that they played. They're really kind of invisible, both on the landscape and in, and in memory. And so I, I really became intrigued by, you know, where did these people go? And, you know, did, was this just sort of something that happened and now we're sort of left with these, these empty mills or, you know, is it still vibrant? What, what kind of legacy did it have? And so I started asking these questions and I found their papers, um, which are the Tennessee state library and archives and was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to go for it and figure out out what the, what the story is here. Great. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about the organization then. And, um, you know, maybe go back some more into, into the new deal and then, you know, moving forward as the, you know, as the region sort of moves through the years of, of World War II. When we think of the new deal and we think of Southern Democrats as kind of their own thing in a lot of ways within the Democratic Party, can you talk about how the SSIC was working with or against Southern Democrats generally, but also with other industrial groups active in the South at this time? So as far as other industrial groups went, they didn't have an adversarial relationship with any of them um, really until the 1950s when they split over um, foreign trade Mm -hmm. and trade policy. Instead, they saw themselves as as filling in a gap between the national organizations like NAM and its state branches or the U.S. Chamber and the industry-specific associations, many of which did have standalone associations for Southern industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the SSAC would step in and represent industries that had too few Southern firms to warrant their own association, um, glove manufacturers, for example. So uh-huh. um, Edgerton and, and other representatives showed up at those code boards um, meetings to, you know, make the case for the Southern wage differential. Uh-huh. Or when it came to the New Deal uh, more broadly, they articulated a Southern-specific set of arguments that the NAM or the Chamber could not articulate without damaging their other members. Um, you know, so, so, so things about you know the unique position of the South um, and its deficiencies. You know, and you know the, the climate gets too hot and we can't run full year at 100%, or our freight rate differentials are you know put us at a disadvantage or, you know, the agricultural origin of our labor the, or the more racist arguments they made mm-hmm. um, about about labor. Um, but as for how they worked with politicians um, to influence the New Deal, um, I mean, in terms of just how they went about this, uh, they literally wined and dined Southern Democrats. Uh-huh. Um, they 
were very much political insiders. They knew these leaders in Congress, sometimes they were related to them, um, and they operated really within the networks of the Democratic Party throughout the South. Uh, the SSIC's general counsel, Tyree Taylor, who was with the organization um, well into the 1950s and maybe even the early 1960s. Um, he had been a leader in the Young Democrats in North Carolina, and he was really based in Washington most of the time, meeting consistently with um, Southern leaders. Um, so they really tended to identify with leaders of Congress, these Southern Democrats, socially. They moved in similar social circles, attended the same social functions. Um, and that they really played up that kind of paternalistic um, language that they shared with members of Congress, right? And that they were trying to best represent um, the South and its needs. And so, you know, these Southern Democrats had to, um, you know, pay attention to what the unique needs of Southern business was alongside, you know, the rest of the South. Mm -hmm. Does this messaging then translate, right? When you have the, you know, this, the politicians who are sort of the mouthpieces, if you will, of SSIC and other industrial groups, is that then translating into how policy is being shaped? Or are these, you know, Southern Democrats, especially initially during the, the early years of the New Deal, just sort of, you know, screaming in the forest and not really getting any traction? Or is this, is this effective, you know, selling this particular view of the region? It was effective with a certain cohort of Southern Democrats. Uh -huh. um, you know, this uh, this tactic that they had of hosting these lavish dinners um, really revealed some of the splits that they had, that the Democratic Party had, mm -hmm. not just nationally, but in the South as well. Um, There's this um, fight that John Edgerton got into with a member of Congress, um, the firebrand Texas representative, Maury Maverick, which is actually where the term political maverick comes from. Uh -huh. um, he's, he's, he's quite notorious. Um, maverick detested the SSIC and what they represented, this kind of, you know, elite um, Southern politics that with this paternalistic language, when the SSIC invited him to one of these steak dinners, um, to appeal to them to weaken the New Deal regulations toward the South. Maverick basically went to the press and just excoriated um, the Edgerton and the SSIC, called it pink tea lobbying and, you know, plying us with steak. Um, and in some ways, this fight might seem like it could be cast as the origins of the split of the Democratic Party in the uh -huh. South. But, uh -huh. uh, but it was more complicated than that. Um, it was more that the SSIC thought that they could, they could still use the New Deal, right? That they could convince these politicians to just make small changes that would benefit the South, right? They were still Democrats, mm -hmm. right? And they still they wanted to attach their wagon, you know, to the party and steer it in the direction that would be most beneficial to them, mm -hmm. to use it to gain um, competitive advantage or leverage against their competitors. Um, the irony of this is that this is, of course, the charge that they're pointing at northern industrialists, right? right, that they're trying to use the New Deal to stamp out upstart competitors from the South. So, I mean, in, in many ways, they did fail, mm -hmm. right, that they weren't able to stop um, interventions into the New Deal's wage structure. Um, with the NRA, you know, they had probably more success, but it, it might have been more of an accidental success that, mm -hmm. that the NRA had such internal problems. It was so complicated and 
um, ultimately ruled unconstitutional, um, that, you know, anything that these guys were arguing was really not at the at the root of its failure. Um, but they really weren't able to block the key policies that would um, impact the South, which were the Fair Labor Standards Act mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the federal minimum wage. So they really had to adjust their their tactics. Through this process with from the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1933 to the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, where are we seeing labor fitting into this story, right? I mean, are they sort of the counterbalancing argument that, you know, or arguers, I should say, to this? You know, when you think of the New Deal as sort of, you know, government mediating between capital and labor in that kind of classic seeing of of that time. What's happening there? Because it seems like, you know, in a lot of ways, labor is having these sort of spectacular successes. There's a lot of grassroots organizing. You have Section 7A protecting labor rights in the NIRA. You have ultimately the Wagner Act in 35 and so on. So, you know, what's happening on that side of it? Are they, you know, is SSIC and labor really butting heads a lot or are they kind of, you know, forging their own paths here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so labor in many ways is central to the story, um, even though individual laborers uh, don't make a large appearance. And and really the labor organizations, um, you know, they kind of, there's these moments where they mock the SSIC as just sort of another example of what management wants to hand the Southern worker. Um, but they're central because at the root of the story here, it's about what labor and the organization empowerment of labor meant to these industrialists. Mm-hmm. So while wage differentials were of concern and later minimum wages that would remake the Southern wage structure, Industrials were primarily concerned about the concentrated power of labor mm-hmm. and the way that that would unseat them and their power in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So one of the big puzzles of Southern economic history, of course, has centered around why the South has had um, less success with unionization, right? a story that continues up until the present. Mm-hmm. And we know the stories about you know union breaking, such as at John um, James Spencer loves Burlington Mills mm-hmm. uh, strikes in the failure in the 1940s. Um, and so what this book does is it places Southern businesses ears of unionization, uh, which they saw not just as an economic threat, but as a social and political one, mm-hmm. right? a threat that would unseat the social and political influence that they had um, at the center of political transformation of the South in the 20th century. And so it's really this that's the crucial step towards political change for these business leaders. Um, This is the path that would lead them to seek out politicians such as Barry Goldwater. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as historians Ellie Shermer and Kim Phillips Fine has shown, anti-unionism was key to the invigoration of conservatism and business leaders um, at the head of that. And so what this does is it adds kind of the Southern business wing into that story. because, of course, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Edgerton had this strong um, reputation as a crusader against organized later, labor. And, you know, he was no less critical of labor going through the New Deal. Um, as a, a matter of fact, when I interviewed his granddaughter, she asked me to find out if organized crime connected to labor unions uh, was responsible for his death. Uh-huh. Uh, he died 
somewhat mysterious circumstances in 1938. Um, basically, it sounds like he ate a bad hamburger and had food poisoning. Oh, wow. <laughs> but she, she just absolutely insisted that there was something nefarious right. that had gone on here. So they, you know, there's clearly, there's an adversarial relationship. Um, but beyond those kinds of conspiracies and demonizations, um, you know, these industrialists um, really saw labor as, you know, people that they wanted to cultivate, mm-hmm. you know, first with that paternalistic language, but also with their commonality as Southerners, particularly as white Southerners. And they saw their workers as, you know, potentially malleable recipients of their arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, these arguments that really, you know, they changed over time um, in the way that they approached it. But they would do things like um, print pamphlets so that employers could put them in their pay envelopes, um, you know, pamphlets with titles like the fallacy of the minimum wage right. and these sort of, you know, demonizing language towards the New Deal. Um, so even as the SSIC's arguments and tactics evolved, uh, they always had this kind of educational mission at the mm-hmm. center of their activism with their eye on stamping out labor organization. So how does the SSIC's approach come to shape wider views of political economy and move forward the organization's ethos, if you want to call it that, in the region, especially then as um, you know, World War II takes place, the New Deal winds down, and then into the post-war, post-war years? As a sort of a second part to that question, where then does conservatism fit into the story, and how are these business industri- business men and industrialists at the forefront. So the real tension between um, their pragmatism and their ideology throughout the story and and how they kind of get these things to come in line with one another. Um, You know, so Southern industry's success was predicated on low wages, right, on this kind of, you know, competitive advantage, or really it's more of a probably appropriate to call it a competitive disadvantage. but, you know, so rather than highlighting the benefits of their region to industry, the kind of booster behavior we've come used, become used to talking about, um, they, they tended to point to the region's disadvantages, its climate, its education, its the background of its workers, um, its low wages, freight rate structures. All of these are problems that the South faced uh, that they pointed out, which, which is sort of grounded in this kind of bottom line of, you know, here's what it costs to do business in our area, but also, you know, here are the the impediments that we face to making profits. But at the same time, um, you know, their conservatism started with cultural and social concerns, Uh right? That they wanted a hierarchical Southern society in which they occupied positions of economic and social status. In this way, they shared a lot with other kinds of conservatives who didn't have the same sort of economic concerns that they did, right? Oddly enough, they even shared this with the agrarians. Um, So while these leaders weren't, these business leaders weren't intellectuals, they shared affinities with the kind of Southern exceptionalism that um, a figure like Donald Davidson trumpeted. By the 1950s, Davidson saw himself as the lone remaining agrarian but he saw the SSIC, oddly, as one of his allies, uh-huh. as another defender of a traditional hierarchical South, particularly when it came to race. Uh-huh. Um, the SSIC saw that hierarchical society 
as key to their competitive advantage and low wages. Um, he likely met the SSIC's rising star, uh, Thurman Sensing, at Nashville White Citizens Council meetings. Um, and and they really formed a friendship and, and an alliance. So I, yeah, I tend to think of this, um, this marriage as kind of a pre-fusion moment that these regional mm-hmm. partisans needed to find common ground, you know, between this kind of pragmatic economic argument and this social, um, you know, traditional conservatism um, that could be then kind of married and incorporated into the national movement in the 1950s. You know, so both Davidson and SSIC affiliates like um, Anthony Harrigan, um, you know, maintain connections to that those national conservative circles um, from Russ Kirk to Buckley and the National Review. Um, so the South wants to, was to be considered part of the conservative movement. Um, it needed more than a commitment to a traditional hier- hierarchical social arrangements. Um, as Jay Langdell argued, it, that form of traditional conservative became conservatism became increasingly superfluous to the national movement. Mm-hmm. So the SSIC really helped connect those traditional conservative arguments to this emerging idea of free enterprise. Right. And before we talk about free enterprise, which you know ultimately is a, a we find is a recurrent theme of your book, um, do you see the civil rights movement and sort of the the ramping up of that, if we think of it as sort of the long civil rights movement, being part of this movement towards, as you called it, a fusion of these sort of disparate, you know, disparate groups, but the same kind of thinking that was driving them? For for the SSIC, the civil rights movement was really um, in their eyes, a, a confirmation of what they'd been saying all along, mm-hmm. that they really mobilized beginning in 1933 against federal intervention in the South. And so it started with minimum wages, you know, and maximum hours and the wage differential. And they were able to shift their focus to civil rights to say, look, see, this is just more of what the federal government has in mind for us, that mm-hmm. they want to remake our region to end our, you know, quote unquote, southern way of life and, uh, you know, to completely undermine, you know, southern society. So, you know, you can see them mobilizing against uh, the Fair Employment Practices Commission and um, attempts to make it permanent after World War II. Um, that was kind of, you know, the first sign of this. But mm-hmm. they they had already been creating these arguments about the South and free enterprise that they would that they would really look to in fighting civil rights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they are absolutely committed to white supremacy into segregation throughout that's consistent um, in their politics and in their their worldview but the arguments that they use to attack uh, the civil rights movement um, and you know the new deal and the fair deal um, that undergoes a transformation mm-hmm so let's get back to the uh, the issue of free enterprise. Um, how does this emerge as a key issue or or rallying point, if you will, um, around which SSIC and other groups focus? So this transformation or this incorporation of free enterprise um, takes place really in the late 1930s and the early 1940s as they realize that they are going to not be able to stop, um, you know, this intervention of the federal government into their wages. Mm-hmm. And they realized that this argument that they've taken about, 
you know, the exceptionalism of the South and its deficiencies, um, that, that, that this is actually going to work against them. One of the key turning points is um, the report on conditions um, in the South, that the, the famous report um, um, from the National Emergency Council mm-hmm. and the preamble to which Roosevelt calls the South the nation's number one economic problem. Mm-hmm. And what's odd is that, that the, the arguments within that report are the things that the SSIC had been pointing to since 1933 as the reason that they needed a wage differential. Mm-hmm. But now that it was being aired by the federal government, they're going, whoa, wait a minute. This is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. this is not the reputation that we want to develop for our region. And so they begin to shift towards articulating the South as they, you know, they would in capital letters, right? The nation's number one economic opportunity, right? Uh-huh, you need to invest right. here. There's all of this potential, um, you know, human capital that has yet to be unleashed. And all. And if only the federal government would treat us fairly, then we could realize all of this economic potential. And so as those are those former arguments begin to backfire, they begin to turn towards this language of free enterprise. Mm-hmm. And what they argue is that the South becomes or they they hold up the South as a kind of paragon of functioning free enterprise, mm-hmm. you know, where you don't have, uh, you know, these really entrenched bureaucracies or, or regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New York had you know, longstanding minimum wage laws mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. worker protections. Right. We don't have that in the South. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly after the war this, you know, they're at the forefront of passing right to work laws, that it all ties into this idea of the South as the home of free enterprise. And so these are the arguments that they um, use to reshape their image of the South in the national political eye. Mm -hmm. Um, I have an entire chapter (laughs) on freight rates, which, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I would joke with my editor that, you know, I was trying to, you know, make freight rates great again, which is horrible. Like, I, I try to make, I really try to make them interesting. I do. Um, because it's really in the freight rate controversy that they realize the power of this argument. Uh-huh, right. And and they begin to go against actually what a lot of those Southern Democrats are saying, that they were so successful, right, in promoting this this argument um, with with Southern Democrats that now that now that they take it up and are saying, you know, that we need to protect this the South from these unfair freight rates, they're going, well, no, 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 wait a minute. No, actually, it's, you know, we want to let firms negotiate their own rates with shippers and not have the federal government intervene and regulate those rates that, no, we need free enterprise to set the rates. And so it's a reversal, but it's also um, a new way to think about the South and its relationship to federal policy in a more positive light. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of ways, still sort of the same same messaging, right? Except, oh, I'm sorry, not not really the same messaging, but sort of the same thinking behind different messaging. Is that? Is yeah, that it's there? the yeah. same bottom line mm-hmm. interests, right? right? Ultimately, it's about local control of wages and operating costs and contracts, but with a very different gloss laid right. over the top. Instead of a kind of paternalistic New South as the reason for this, it is, you know, free enterprise mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in particular in the context of the emerging Cold War, right. right? They see this as something that they could really hitch their wagons to. Right. So what happens to the SSIC um, and, and what do you see as its as its legacy long term? 
So for the organization um, in the 60s, they grow increasingly reactionary, um, mm -hmm. but also more nationally focused. Um, so when it comes to their reactionary politics, um, some of them are very cognizant of this and they they don't want to be seen as uh, kind of a fringe kind of birch like group. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, they are very committed ideologically or increasingly committed ideologically. Um, they're mentioned actually in the report on assassinations in connection to Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Um, there is a, a rumor that circulated that SSIC members were getting together basically a ransom for his assassination. Mm -hmm. It's never really followed through. It's kind of unconfirmed, but it is also not surprising given their politics regarding mm -hmm. uh, civil rights all along. But when it comes to its economics, in the 1960s, it shifts really towards um, small and medium-sized manufacturing and particularly um, anti-free uh, trade politics in, mm -hmm. in the international sense mm -hmm. that they begin to see um, that the, the competition that they had offered to the North in the 1920s, that they were now falling subject to, mm -hmm. um, from abroad in the 1950s. And so they really shift their politics more into that area, mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, they become nationalized and they changed their name in the early 1970s. It's, they changed it a couple of times and for a while they're an educational organization's um, but it's the U United States Business and Industrial Council, mm -hmm. um, which still exists. It's you know very different, um, very much more focused on on international trade and the kind of um, undermining of of national wages and you know I guess America first kind of policies mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that that we see coming from the Trump administration. That the they receive an influx of cash from um, Red Millican Millican Industries who um, in the late 1960s was looking to Ronald Reagan, um, but who was also a strong protectionist. Mm -hmm. um, so, they, so they grow more narrow, um, they grow more reactionary, um, and then they kind of transform um, over the course of the 1970s and the 1980s into a very, very different kind of organization with, without that, that regional um, basis. Mm -hmm. um, but as these voices kind of withdraw, as they, you know, shift towards these national conversations, I would say that the region that they shaped um, has continued to play an important role in politics, mm -hmm. that, that the, there is a, a legacy about how the South fits into the larger national political economy and culture uh, that they played a role in. Um, at the end of the book, I, I suggest the you know, that a new voter identity kind of emerges out of this um, legacy that they left, the the Cracker Barrel vote is mm -hmm. what I talk about then. That, um, also that, Lebanon, Tennessee, right? Yes, yes. So <laughs> there's sort of an... It know, comes full circle, right? Yeah, it comes full circle because, you know, you have the, the Civil War statue uh, and then the Cracker Barrel, right? That right. those are sort of the two poles of Southern identity and popular culture. Um, but what's missing is this kind of middle piece of the way that, you know, these industrialists built towns like Lebanon that now vote a particular way, um, but that are sort of married to this kind of booster business climate, um, political economy of, of right to work laws and low regulation and low taxation. Um, so even though you don't have those industrialists themselves advocating in this with the same force at the national level, the politics that they have left and those, those commitments uh, do remain.
Okay, Jewel, uh, Dollars for Dixie is a is a fantastic book, uh, including the freight rate chapter. Um, <laughs> and uh, so thanks for, for uh, coming on uh, Working History and, and sharing a little bit about it. Thank you so much. I really I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Catherine Rye Jewell, Assistant Professor of History at Fitchburg State University and author of Dollars for Dixie, published by Cambridge University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 